I couldn't tell you the outcome was great when I did it. Like in hindsight, it's, oh yeah, I got to be part of teams. I didn't know we were onto something, right? But man, when we did that, it just felt right. Hi, and welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast where you'll hear real stories of trials and victories in business. I'm Jenny Harold, Chief Product Officer of GTM Hub. GTM Hub is the world's most powerful platform for objectives and key results, or OKRs. In concept, OKRs are easy to understand, but challenging to execute. Until now. Check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. Joining me today is Prar Johnson. She's currently leading the Agile and DevOps design teams for Jira Software, Bitbucket, OpsGenie, and Status Page. She's got over 19 years of experience, spent some time shaping product at Nokia, T-Mobile, Skype Microsoft, SoundCloud, and Shopify. On this episode, you'll hear her explanation for why product strategy is hard, the time she made a tough call using a consensus-driven approach, what data the Atlassian design team uses to shape their OKRs, how she got involved with the birth of what is now known as Microsoft Teams, and more. Let's jump in. Prar, it's really great to have you on the show today. Jenny, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. As you know, I'm a dear friend of yours and vice versa, and you've done nothing but help coach and mentor me as well. So I'm excited to be here. Cool. So let's dive in. If you've never read any of Prar's stuff, I highly recommend you go over to unlikelypath.com where she writes her thoughts about her experience and product and life and her musings in between. So I'm going to start there because you've been a leader for a long time in a good way. And something that really struck me was your manifesto that you wrote down in August of 2019. Can you share with our listeners like, how did this came about and like what are the underlying things that you wanted to kind of share with the, your readers about how you think product or design or any leader should be? The manifesto came at a point where I was a high achiever and I really, really, really was working very hard to get to a, a state in my career that's at the top. And I finally had made it. I was a CPO. And that to me was amazing. And I realized at this point where I'm working with the founder and their initiatives were quite different than what was really in my heart and where I wanted to be. And I believe that title was no longer something that I was trying to achieve. And I had to sit back and think about what I wanted and what I was good at and what was really bothering me and why I didn't feel like I fit. And the manifesto came from that experience is being able to build something that is maybe not yours, but you sort of adopt that passion and purpose behind it. And then you realize that the founder has a different initiative and a different set of values and a different set of callings. And for me to realize there were some small signs, like they just didn't feel right. You know, there was a conversation I had and that person didn't really agree with something I said. And it's just in the back of my mouth, it felt wrong. It tasted bad. 
And the manifesto came from a lot of self-reflection. I think, you know, just sitting back and thinking about what I could control and what I couldn't control and what really just didn't work for me. And that's sort of where it started. Yeah. So kind of to delve into it, was this something that you wanted to write down and make public for any particular reason? I was curious about that when I read it. Well, I think it's interesting because for me, I don't think a lot of people who slow down and think about what they really want and what they're actually good at. I'm going to repeat this because I coach quite a few people. I lead quite a large team. I've led larger teams before. And often people you know, go to that path of gaining that title, receiving the rewards of that title. And often or not, they don't really think about what their skill set are, what their craft are, where their values are to line up for where they want to go. And I found that I was giving similar advice to many people. There's a lot of people who are on that destination. They're on that path to destination and they're willing to fill whatever slot that founder or that role requires them to do. They're filling these gaps, right? And they're not really looking within. And I think there's been so many, even today, I just had an interview with somebody today and they found that I was hiring for a role and they came to me and they said, yeah, I don't really know where I'm going. And they were really excited about the title. They had senior in the title and and that's what just attracted them to the role. And I, I started talking to this person and the more and more I started hearing this person's story, I realized they don't actually know what they want. And I could see in their conversation, as we continue to talk, I asked about his strengths. I asked about his weaknesses. I asked a bit about, you know, what makes him happy. And he had no idea, absolutely no idea. And for me, I wanted to share that I don't have the answers, but doing some self-reflection, like I can't help you be happy. I can't help you find that. I have roles. I have lots of roles for great, talented people. But I think more importantly is finding that fit when you yourself kind of understand what you're looking for as an individual and finding that best fit. And so that exercise helped me self-realize what I was looking for. Yeah. So when I was thinking about what you were just saying, I mean, it seems like there is so much parallel we could see between business and us as individuals in a way. Right, because we talk a lot about product market fit and you know product channel fit, and what you're describing is like value career fit, you know, or that sort of ideal that there is some parallel that we can make, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think that sometimes people have a hard time putting words to it, and I think that's what that manifesto is: is putting words to finding the right cultural fit. You know, just going off for a company like you could go work for Microsoft and there's many teams that you could fit in. But, you know, if you can find the right team, the right product, the right values, and sometimes it's down to your leader, like who you're following or the GM or the CEO or the founder. And if those values don't fit, it may not be the right place for you. Right. And absolutely. It's not necessarily the typical resume that you're looking at anymore. So now you're at Atlassian, right? I mean, a lot of people who are in tech know exactly who you are and what you do. Something that I've been curious about, because I'm thinking about that in our own business at GTM Hub, is defining these, just similar to what you had done for your manifesto, is defining this or making sense of the landscape for the business. And kind of the three big things that I've been thinking about recently is 
how goals relate to strategy and relate to tactics, right? And it's the same that you would pursue in your professional career. You have some goal, you have some way or plan about how you're going to accomplish that thing. And then you have the tactics in which you're going to go do that. Why do you think it's so hard to define product strategy? Like, why do you, why? I'm sure you all have one at Atlassian, but I, I hear it over and over again. Like, it's really hard to craft this. Why is that? Because it's ambiguous, right? You have to make something out of nothing. And I think a lot of people get uncomfortable with that. I see more and more, you know, as more software designers and, you know, engineers come online and start building products, some of the first things they struggle with is tell me the problem statement, right? And we're before that. As product leaders and strategists, we don't always have that crisp problem statement. You know, we have to go into investigation. We have to look at the trends. We have to look at the market. Yeah, and we have to take a bet. You know, we can't always know the complete mapping and the complexities to a perfect point. We have to do the job of making lots of hypotheses around how these dots connect, whether it's data, whether it's trends, whether it's pain point, right? And that's a lot of information to put together. And, you know, just if you elevate one pain point versus another data point, you might end up in a different direction. And the reality is that a large part of creating product strategy is pulling a whole bunch of that stuff together with different team members and taking a bet on some of your hypothesis. And I find that a lot of people struggle with that. It's like, how do you know what to decide? How do you know where to go? And sometimes it's that confidence that, you know, you have to believe in the information that you have. You have to trust that with the time that you have and the information you've gathered, even if it's a short period of time, that you have to make a decision based on what you know today. That's hard. That's really hard. Yeah, I mean, because what you're describing is basically defining product strategy so you can make those tough choices, right? Based on the insights or the understanding of that data, as you've described. And then somehow converting that into action or things that the, the team will have to actually execute against. But I've, I've seen different leaders, you know, it depends on how abstract your strategy is, right? If you already know you're working on a project management tool that delivers OKRs, that's one part, right? It's like some of the areas have been, the focus has been defined for you. But sometimes as you go up the strategy leadership, you know, you don't know, like, you know, you're not making the revenue anymore, <laughs> or you've become stagnant, or you see a strong signal that says, we've got to do something different. And you don't know, you don't actually know which one it is. And the more you end up in these sort of more senior roles, it's no longer crisp anymore. It's even more abstract. It's like you really have to paint that picture for everyone on your team. And you can, I mean, like, and technically I go through those skills that we've been trained even in the more scoped areas where, you know, you take a look at the product data, you take a look at the, and you create some hypothesis and you go and you look at the customer research customer success managers and their synthesis. You talk to the product designers, you go look at the product team and do a market compete. And then you've got to make sense of that. And once you do, and sometimes you can't do it. It works in silos. Like, you know, our BizOps team is working in silo and they've come up with some information. And then the research team has come up with another piece of information. And sometimes those are conflicting. I mean, I've been in many conversations where they're absolutely conflicting. And so, you know, it's like, how do we as leaders help mitigate those conflicting data points? 
right? And still drive and make those tough decisions to say, okay, no, you know, we feel pretty confident that we're going to take a bet because we can forecast that there's going to be some ROI here or some, you know, growth, or we're going to get more listening time, you know, or we're going to get more MRR, right? So things like that. What, if you can share a story, what was like one of the most difficult choices that you've had to make? Because you are pursuing the product strategy, you try to make sense of maybe conflicting or supporting insider data, but you had to make that call. Like, can you share with our listeners like a story about that and then how you were thinking through it? So it's really interesting. I wasn't quite senior yet. And this is, it's an interesting example because I was at Microsoft and I have several examples and this is the one that first popped up. So it's not quite the senior leadership maybe story that you might want, Jenny, but it's one of my favorite moments. We were working on multi-party video and most products offer that for meetings and conferences now and today, but this is back in 2010 and Skype had done some multi-party experiments with subscriptions. I think you could up-level subscription and get eight people in a room or infinite amount of people and see their video. I mean, this was quite advanced at the time. And we wanted to bring that to enterprise because we felt it was critical to connect different people for business meetings, getting things done, making decisions, collaborating, and so on. And video was so powerful. And to be able to have four people in a room, all with video, getting things done. And I know it sounds crazy because you can do that now and it's pretty much the part of the business norm. And at Microsoft, we were trying to figure out how that video logic worked. And I was adamant that people did not want to see themselves with others. And I really, really believe that, and we call it a PIP, basically is your preview and picture, right? At the bottom right corner as you're having these video calls. And we were trying to get a bunch of videos and and we have limitations. Like you can't put 20 videos all at once because it just simply can't handle, the stack cannot handle that power. And I remember we did some data analytics, like is there products out there that support it? So we took a compete and I think we took, I don't remember the other products, but I remember we took Skype and we basically did some analysis around Skype as a compete and how their video was working in there picked like basically their PIP. And then we looked at some other competitors and then we tried to prototype our own. And I remember we got a 50-50 vote in our team. 50% of our team decided that everybody absolutely would want to see their own preview while being in meetings with others. And the other 50% was like, absolutely not. And I remember we did this research study and we took... We actually, it was a pretty amazing study because we were not able to replicate our study very well. So we kind of had to get our engineers to pull together sort of a prototype and mock up the video. Uh, It was quite interesting. And we tested it and it turned out, I think it was something like 60% of our participants in the study wanted to see their PIP and the other 40% didn't. And it was quite close. And I remember the researcher came back to us and said, you could still go either way because this is subjective. And I remember going, how are we going to make this decision? And I kid you not, we got, I think, 12 people in that room and we all, and I was leading this group. This was my decision and we decided to make it a group vote. And everyone in that room, we said, okay, well, I don't know how else to make this decision. So why don't we vote? 
said, how many people in here, based on the information we have, based on the data that we have and the research that we just did, the qualitative research we did, what should we do? Should we show the PIP? And everybody raised their hands except for me. (laughs) And guess what? The team, it was anonymous. The team believed. And so I gave in, I committed. And so we made that decision based on the team. And sure enough, I was wrong. Most videos, like if you use Facebook Messenger today, you see your own view. You know, most meetings, you see your own view. So when we were working on technology that was quite, you know, nascent at that time, there was no paradigm. There was no said understood pattern to copy anywhere. So I thought it was very interesting how we took both Qualt and Quant and then ended up using this group voting system and used our instincts to move forward with this critical decision. And now it's the pattern. It's what's used everywhere. Wow, that's pretty incredible. And I can imagine humbling as well (laughs) in (laughs) retrospect, right? I remember, you know, a couple of meetings later where I even said, I was like, it's what the team wants. (laughs) And I stand behind it. And I remember, you know, presenting it. And, you know, there's a little bit in my head that's like swallowing pride going, we are committed and we believe. And, you know, in the back of my head, I'm going, I don't believe, but I I get it. The team, I get it. We'll do this. And I dropped it after a while, but it was quite interesting how that worked out. Kind of on that train of thought. So now you're at Atlassian. It sounds like a really exciting new opportunity for you. When you entered into this new environment, was the strategy clear to you? So it's an interesting company where we believe in autonomy and autonomous teams. So there's quite a few strategies. One of the thing that, well, it's a combination. So we have OKRs. We're we're very clear with our OKRs in many aspects of the company. And it's been really brilliant to watch how, you know, we perform and we also storm around how we might approach these OKRs. And I'm still fairly new. I'm about four months in. And it's been fascinating because this is now long enough where, you know, I've been in meetings where we, the strategy for my team was pretty clear in the product leader's hat. But for me as a new onboarder, truly really trying to understand the domain, understand the product, understand the organization and the way we get things done, right? I would say to me, it was... I could read that work and I could read the missions and the strategies and the OKRs, but they did not make sense to me. So when you ask me that question, when you onboard a new company, it takes time to understand. And each piece of the company matters. I believe our mission, our strategies and our OKRs for each of the teams are powered by the organizational design, the state of the product and where we are as a business and where we want to move the needle, our company values. And every single leader that's in place, because that leader is what's determining what direction we're going. And absolutely the teams. Um, I really believe a large part of where a lot of our OKRs come from or origin is because there was an autonomous team that came up with a really great idea. We work in triads. And there's, I could say even right now, there's three that are critical in our future strategies that probably started off as a small team. And we've kind of elevated their initiatives to be part of our grander strategy and mission now. So it's been interesting to step into a company that has some parts developed. Now we work in a fully agile company and we move very quickly. So 
already four months in, I'm now helping to evolve the Agile and DevOps strategy, which really takes in many of our triads and looking quite across the company because we do want to create this massive change. And when you do something like that, it echoes. It's like one of my peers, my entry lead goes, it's like moving tectonic plates, right? It's organizational design. It is resetting, not resetting, but re-evaluating what our OKRs are, right? And it's been really fascinating to watch. And we're, I would still describe us as a hyper-growth company. We were a startup and I don't really see much of that startup as much as I've seen in other companies I've been at. So we are moving to this I would say we're more corporation every day. So it's been really interesting and fascinating to watch how strategies from what used to be a startup is now shifting in how we create them. And it feels a bit more corporation now. Can you go into a little bit more detail about how you all do OKRs? Because, I mean, you mentioned moving tectonic plates, but you also mentioned that you all are hyper growth, right? Can you discuss a little bit about how that, how does that actually work together? That is very interesting that I did say this contradictory statement. We're agile. So again, I think it, it comes from the autonomous teams. They move very quickly. And so when you're setting OKRs and, and you create sort of an area of definition that's customer value centric, the teams do go off and spin on ideas on where we're going to move the need, like the metrics that we're going to set. How we set these OKRs, and I will say that Atlassian, I have not set them. So I would not be able to give you the expertise, but I can tell you how we check into them and how we're about to go start changing some of them. So the first set of OKRs that we've been in, they've been set based on what we've learned in our product, like where we're performing. So we have biz ops that takes and data teams that work together to establish kind of where we sit with our product. And we have a couple key metrics that we really look at. Some of them are really quite typical, like MRR, monthly reoccurring revenue. Some of them are the number of seats that we have. We look at churn. We look at what I would describe as evaluators who you know look at our products and maybe don't go past certain dates. And we sort of look at where we believe some of the challenges are. And one of the things, because I'm responsible for Jira software, one of the things that I think has been fascinating, I was not part of the creation of this. This has been set by the UX research director. She's created what we call CSAT. And she really, and we use this other thing called HATS, which was created by Google. And we use the combination of this to really look at customer satisfaction of our product. And if you know Jira, Jira is complicated, it's very difficult. So as a designer, one of the things I do look at is CSAT to see the amount of investment and design and experiences that we need to move on Jira. I mean, to be honest, it's a, you know, it's one of the, some of the biggest complaints we get is performance, right? It's not moving fast enough. I'm loading a board. The board is, is not loading fast enough. I've clicked something and I moved out and I clicked something while it was loading and it got me into another state. We have a lot of customer feedback that comes back in our hat surveys. It's very connected. Like if you look at our hat survey, 
you look at our CSAT, and then you look at, you know, the JIRA service desk. We have tickets that come in for our own product. And you can start seeing that there's some clear trends. And so one of the OKRs we set is around CSAT and improvement of CSAT. We now are shifting our strategies. So to answer your question around how do you create these OKRs when, you know, the strategies are shifting, well, the tectonic plate part is this, is that while the teams are fully autonomous and they use things like CSAT or churn or invest in features based on the metrics that we set and the teams get to decide on what they are and they pitch that to us. And as a leadership team, you know, we support their decisions or we give them feedback around maybe we should look at something else. But now that we're moving in a different direction for the company, it's become really clear that we may not have the right way of measuring what we want to measure for this new strategy. And so I'm not privy to tell you exactly what we're doing, but I think it's going to be very interesting in what OKR we will set. And if a company is used to setting OKRs like CSAT or MRR, and we're using a different format to measure our success, how do you instill that into the rest of the company where they're used to these repetitive metrics that we always use. And so that's what I described as tectonic plate. What are the opportunities? And for us, this is multiple teams across the company to get our shared goal in mind done. And when you start looking at multiple teams, the OKR can't be set by autonomous teams now, right? So if you share dependencies on multiple teams and have a shared OKR, what is that perfect shared OKR? What is the series of things, the levers that we need to pull? And I'm finding that that's going to be very difficult. Uh, I see. So really what you're saying is you had a certain way of measuring the outcomes for the business at some point and that's changing. And now it's a matter of looking at the org and trying to map all of the people around the new initiatives and the new strategy and to define success in a new way. Yes. That sounds like a lot. (laughs) While retaining some of the methodologies, because you cannot completely shift over, right? But when you're, you know, it's easy if you're in a triad that's owning a feature to say, I'm looking for increasing CSAT by 5% or something like that over the course of a quarter. But it's hard to say that when I have 10 teams to coordinate because CSAT means something else for each one of those teams. So what customer value are you driving to get that customer satisfaction? And so I find that it's very interesting because our new approach is going to change some of that. I don't think that CSAT is the right metric of what I'm describing, but I'm giving you an example. Yeah, I appreciate that. So I guess you've highlighted something that we all know is true, but we don't talk very much about. Product strategy is never static, right? (laughs) No. No, it's not. But it's almost as if a lot of times we we approach it with a a set it and forget it kind of attitude. What are some of the things that you have done in the course of your career to evolve that product strategy to stay in tune? Like, What have you tried and what have you learned to adapt, to have that adaptive product strategy? You know, it's been interesting. I was lucky in my early parts of my career where everything that we work on today has become pretty common tools in software and even utilitarian. You know, I started off in software design in Nokia before iPhone. So 
you know, the app platform and all of that wasn't really common. So a large part of our products that we worked on, I didn't know that I was working on product strategy. (laughs) I mean, I'll be quite honest, but the tools that I use then are the tools that I use today. I often find the resources that I go to are McKenzie reports, you know, trends analysis. I do subscribe. I'm in a new domain now. I'm in DevOps, Agile and DevOps. And while as a product manager in my history, I understood one spectrum or one perspective. As a designer in my career, I've understood another perspective, but I don't have the empathy for the DevOps the way that somebody who's a developer does. And so I subscribe to all the cutting edge (laughs) LinkedIn articles, Google alerts, anything that could come up that says DevOps, I'm getting those news. So I think it's really important to make sure that you're getting on and understanding what your competitors are doing. And one way is to understand like actually to get those alerts around who's out there doing something else. And another thing is subscribing to some of these blogs. There's some really great DevOps newsletters and things like that that come out. So I would really encourage, like if you're in a domain and as a product leader, typically most of us are in a domain, we're setting these OKRs because you know we signed up for that value. We signed up for what the company is promising for our end users or our customers or you know whoever is purchasing your service. And understanding that domain and how it fits into their lives is super critical. And so I follow Twitter feeds. I'm in the Facebook groups. I'm trying to understand what people are saying about this. But I also know and I've noticed that like even in DevOps, somebody is coming up with a new solution every day. And with software, things are componentized or you're managing your tool chain. And so there's really easily somebody's going to come up with something that can replace (laughs) something that was used before. You want to stay on top of the trends, but you don't want to make any knee-jerk movements. And I think I've learned a lot that I've been in companies where there were companies where they made knee-jerk reactions and changed the strategy completely, right? So I think something that I've noticed is like, you can be really agile, but, you know, getting a 180 is maybe not the right approach. You can't do that right or left. I definitely have seen that in companies as well. Um, some on my part proposing something that was a 180 that the company just simply couldn't do, right? Or realizing when you do need to do a 180, but because you just need to revamp your business. What was an example of one of these 180s that you either drove or you saw the business drive where you, like you would say, you know what? I learned so much from that. I would do that again or I'd never do that again. Like it was that significant? I have two. I would say I was lucky to be the one that I, that comes up when you add the words like proud of and would want to repeat again. And I did repeat it, but the results were different. <laughs> so that was the second time. So I have both stories in one. So the first time I experienced a really great methodology, well, we did this in consultancies a bit, but to take this methodology and bring it into a corporation I was fascinating. I was at Skype when we had realized, and I think this is around, I want to say 2015 or at the end of 2014, I think around November, December, I was called in a room by my design manager and he said, well, you're going to be part of a special team. And I said, okay, because we're going to call ourselves SkypeX. And I was like, all right. He's like, are you up for it? I'm like, great. I was like, what is it? He's like, you're going to be in a room with a whole bunch of senior leaders, PMs, engineers, and a couple of designers, and we're going to figure out what's next with Skype. 
said, okay, that sounds cool. And this is literally defining the product strategy for the future of this business. And I remember going, well, why are we doing this? And he goes, well, you know, we recognize that videos and everything, like it's been commoditized. Like Messenger used to use Skype for their, you know, video, peer video and, and Messenger. They used to use the Skype plugin or the Skype experience. I don't know if it was a plugin at the time. And WhatsApp had a video, Instant Messenger started doing their own video. So it became really easy to do. And we realized that Skype, you know, needs to really think about what we're going to do with this technology. Where are we going to move the business? And so we created the SkypeX team, which is business experience and technology teams working together, key representative of each of the discipline. And I do think that this is pretty much how startups function now. They call them triads and they use the framework desirability, feasibility, and viability. It's the same. It's just different words, but business experience technology means the same thing. We use this methodology and we went off and we all agreed to write a paper and to present this to corporate vice presidents of a company by the end of March. So we kicked off in January and we ended up writing a white paper. And we came up the end conclusion of this paper, this presentation. We did a seven hour presentation in London to all the CVPs. We presented a brand. We presented prototypes. We pitched the narrative. I pitched a key part of that narrative. We talked about the tech stack and it was probably one of the most amazing experiences of my life to be part of setting the tone of where we're going. And fast forward a month or so later, we decide on two initiatives. One is Skype Next, which was rolling up some consumer features that we wanted to see in the market because we had competes like WhatsApp. I think GroupMe we owned at the time, but it was very similar. We're trying to figure out how groups work together in the social space. And we knew Messenger was doing some work there too. And so we put some numbers together and we said, okay, this is where this needs to go. But the one that I thought was fascinating that we ended up coming up with was Teams. And we didn't call it Teams. It wasn't called Teams at that time. It was basically, we needed to come up with a room-based solution where people could come together in these channels. And we call them rooms at the time. And people wanted to have conversations and exchange ideas in these spaces. They want to bring their documents. They want to have video chats and more to be more productive in their work environments, whether it's teams working together or, you know, one-on-ones or collaboration. And I would say I have referenced the business document that we came up with and the metrics that we came up with. We were pretty spot on for that. And it's just, it was amazing to see how when creating a product strategy, you really need to listen to your other disciplines and you need to translate and speak almost seamlessly as one to drive that strategy and that vision. And I think that that was probably the most amazing experience of my career so far is to be part of this. And I wouldn't say just the outcome. Like I couldn't tell you the outcome was great when I did it. Like in hindsight, it's, oh yeah, I got to be part of teams. I didn't know we were onto something, right? But man, when we did that, it just felt right. And that partnership, like that bond we had with everyone and how we listened to each other and we moved quickly, we made decisions, we would cut to the next section. It was pretty fabulous. And so that to me was a great experience and a great methodology to use to help define a strategy. So- Obviously, the application of this methodology to derive the strategy for what is now Microsoft Teams was a success. But you mentioned that there were two 
instances where you had applied the same methodology and the second time it didn't work. What did that look like? I actually took the same strategy or this, not same strategy, but the methodology to derive this strategy at SoundCloud. And, you know, it's really interesting. The process worked. Working with marketing, working with data scientists, and working with the VPs of product and community and really bringing everyone together to help create a new point of view and where to go. And I would say it was great work. Like, you know, we really, we surveyed our product. We talked to real customers. We started understanding, you know, our user base, their age, where they were. We looked at trends. We looked at the future. So we did this business experience tech team and I was responsible for this. So I helped coordinate this with our teams and I helped coordinate this with stakeholders where at Microsoft, my CVP had sponsored this and drove this initiative. And in this case, this is me. So this is me testing something that I had learned and making it happen in a company as a leader. And and I think it was amazing to do. And the process was fantastic. And it was harder to get buy-in because it's not something that was you know, blessed. It was me blessing it. (laughs) And then getting the founders to agree with this, helping to educate my peers that are VPs of product, the value of doing this exercise. I mean, it's expensive to pull people together, right? How do you prove the ROI when you have all the VPs in the room working towards this strategy? If that's an expensive room, right? That's an expensive hour. But it was fascinating to see this methodology work again. But unfortunately, you know, we delivered, we presented to the board and, you know, we did a great amount of work. Unfortunately, we were invested in a direction that we could not necessarily impact. We had signed deals. There's legal obligations, years of debt that we needed to figure out. And it didn't matter. And, you know, I don't blame the founders. This is a difficult situation to be in. And I think that they did the right thing for where their business was. And we just couldn't pivot right? Where at Microsoft, it's a corporation. We knew the video wasn't working and we had clear signals that we needed to come up with something new and we did it. And we moved forward. The company, you know, self-orchestrated their organizations a little bit differently. And there was a team's team. And then, you know, Skype ended up being a different team and people got split off and we lost people and I left as well. But then at SoundCloud, you know, unfortunately it was great work, great strategy, but We were bound by the commitments that we had before and the promises that we made. And so we couldn't move on it, unfortunately. I still love that effort. But in some ways, I feel I could have done that effort a little bit differently. I don't know if I was meeting the needs of the founders at the time, right? If I had known the constraints of the company, I may have moved that vision a very different direction. And again, these stories are only good because, you know, I can think about that in hindsight, but when you're experiencing this, you're so proud, you don't, and you're working so hard and you, and you, you get so excited around the passion and purpose around these projects and efforts that, you know, you really believe you really want to help customers gain some value and you want to help this business makes some revenue. And so you kind of lose sight of things, but it's, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? And so it's been really, and I said this before, humbling to realize that not every process can work, right? The context matters, the company situation matters, and you're not always going to have the right answers. Well, this has been a really good conversation. And I'm really, really glad that you were able to share, you know, what your experience has been hopefully for the benefit of our listeners. So thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jenny. It's always a pleasure. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com slash radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time. <laughs>